Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to this week's episode of the Experts Only Podcast. I am Thomas Byrne, co-founder of Clean Capital, guest hosting this week's podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome Varun Sibaram, a thought leader in the clean energy space. We discuss his exceptional new book, Taming the Sun, which outlines the current clean energy landscape and the advances that we need to make to unleash it. It's a thought-provoking book, and we encourage all listeners to grab copy. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Varun, great to have you on Experts Only Podcast. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. So you've wrote, you wrote a great book, Taming the Sun, which really gets into uh, the challenges that we face as a solar industry. Um, interested to first start with where you grew up, how did you get, end up getting into solar? Absolutely. I grew up in Silicon Valley, um, and I was kind of surrounded by innovation. You know, my dad was in the semiconductor industry. He was at Intel. He had the office next to Gordon Moore's. So that's a Moore's Law fame. Uh, so, so, so I grew up thinking, you know, we'd invent our way uh, out of anything. My first job was to work at NanoSolar. Uh, NanoSolar was this innovative Silicon Valley startup. It raised more money than any startup except for Facebook. Wow. And I later would, uh, you know, study uh, new solar technologies in a laboratory at Oxford University as a graduate student. But I also had various other experiences that were outside of science and innovation. I you know, worked in city government in the city of Los Angeles to install more solar than any other city in the country. I worked at McKinsey with large utilities that were wondering, what does this wave of solar mean for us? And now I work as a, uh, an analyst at a public policy think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations. And I think about U.S. policy as well as other countries' policy. And so I found that there are a lot of different perspectives being thrown around when it comes to solar. And the innovation-only perspective probably is incomplete. So I wrote the book to kind of tread this even-handed path among many different perspectives. Those that say that we have revolutionary new technologies around the road and those that say that, hey, we have great bankable technologies right now. Right. Those that say that we need a lot more subsidies and those that say that solar is a boondoggle and deserves no subsidies. I think there's a middle path and that's that's what the book is trying to do. So looking back at that experience with NanoSolar, what was going on then? What went wrong and what happened uh, to get us to where we are today, especially when you think of solar panel manufacturers? Yeah, that, that time, 2006, was this season of hope for solar. First Solar had just gone public uh, to you know a resounding IPO. Stock price soared. Everybody said, you know what, let's pile into solar. Silicon Valley investors uh, invested in a raft of solar startups. And, and, and many of these startups actually did have uh, remarkable technologies. You know, NanoSolar was a great company with yep. great engineers. Yep. Uh, Solyndra, which also is quite notorious, uh, also had a great team and great engineers and a great technology. NanoSolar's technology, as well as Solyndra's, was a material called SIGS, copper, indium, gallium, selenium. Uh, that's not important. The important thing is it's a different material from the dominant one, silicon, which has dominated the solar industry yeah. for several decades. Uh, SIGS was going to be thinner. It was going to be cheaper. It was going to be flexible. Right. Literally, you could curl up these this roll of aluminum foil with SIGS on top of it, and you could roll it up, and, and, and you could ship it easily. You could plaster it all over the place. This is a remarkable product. Uh, and unfortunately, all of these or many of these uh, innovative companies from Germany to the United States all went bankrupt when China flooded the market 
with super cheap silicon solar panels, largely thanks to the help of the state. State aid enabled them to dump low-cost, often below-cost, solar panels on global markets. And was that a bad thing? You know, in the short run, it may not have been. Um, China, thanks to China, we now have extremely cheap solar panels. Manufacturers in China and now in Asia have scaled up. They no longer need government subsidies, but they needed them right at the beginning to get started. Yeah. And now we have really cheap solar panels that are you know, made by low-cost producers. That's fantastic, right? But the bad part is when you look at the long-term consequences. In the long run, because silicon has become so dominant in the short run, it may be the case that silicon's locking out new, possibly superior technologies. Look, there are really cool technologies out there. I've seen many of them. Um, they could not only uh, be more efficient and cheaper than silicon, they could enable a whole range of new applications and versatility. The problem is we may never get to them because silicon is so dominant now that any other technology faces a steep uphill climb uh, to enter this market that's currently dominated by an incumbent. And then I want to get into some of those technologies later and how we can catapult them as an industry. I think that is, that's sort of a perpetual challenge, how, how we deploy technologies. Let's, let's dive into the book. And you start the book off with two futures, a bleak one where climate change overtakes us and we do not efficiently deploy clean energy. And one in which we smartly implement clean energy and climate change, while not, not solved, is mitigated. So let's start with the first future. Maybe you could describe that for our listeners. Absolutely. In the first future, I envision a world where megacities from Mexico City, Lagos, New Delhi, are choked by smog, where inequality is still rampant, over a billion people lack access to electricity, and where the world is pretty dangerous because climate change is serving up floods, droughts, and heat waves. That world, remarkably, in my opinion, is a result of the solar power revolution sputtering out. Mm. More than almost any other cause, solar in particular has this transformative ability uh, to, to either put us in that world if solar stalls or take us out of that world. You know, in that world, because solar was supposed to anchor a clean energy revolution and didn't, it started rising and then stopped sometime in the 2030s, it, it halted. As a result, you see that fossil fuels continue to exert a stranglehold on the economy. They uh, account for most of the electric power production. They uh, Oil fuels almost every single car, ship, truck, and plane on the planet. Uh, industry is almost entirely fueled by fossil fuels. All of this has resulted in just absolutely miserable uh, living conditions. That's a future that I actually don't think is a straw man. It's the future we're on track for by mid-century. Mm -hmm if solar stalls, and, and I think that's a very real risk. Already in California, you're seeing some of the challenges of having a substantial amount of solar and renewable, intermittent renewable energy as part of the overall portfolio. Look at California and look at the duck curve. What's, what's that reality? What is the duck curve? The duck curve is a fantastic marketing tool invented by the California Independent System Operator, and they have had more success explaining why Intermittent renewable energy causes problems to the grid than anybody else because of this cute duck curve. Right. So, so here's what the duck curve is. Initially, when you put the first solar panel on a grid, that solar panel is actually really useful because, especially in California, um, in the middle of the day, uh, on a you know on a hot day, for example, there's a lot of air conditioning demand that that solar panel helps you meet. So that's fantastic. You know, you the first few solar panels help to decrease your midday demand peak. 
The problem is not when you have the first couple solar panels, but when you have a lot of solar panels on the grid. After you've met the peak, and so you've basically smoothed out the demand profile, the profile of how much electricity consumers are using over the course of a day, the additional solar panels now cause that profile to become unsmooth. They cause the demand in the middle of the day to fall after you've met their demand from your increasing amount of solar panels. It falls so much that it's called the belly of the duck. Yeah. And so at the belly of the duck in the middle of the day when you have a lot of solar panels, your customers no longer need other power plants to meet very much of their electricity. This sounds great, right? The problem is when the sun sets. So when you get to evening time, starting at 5 p.m., uh, you see the spike in the need for electricity from other generators as solar power plants all go offline across the board. And that's known as the neck or the, I don't know, the beak of the duck. <laughs> and so because of this duck curve, you have a belly where you don't need power plants to do very much. And then you have a neck or beak where you absolutely need power plants to rapidly ramp up and make up for disappearing solar output. The grid is suddenly under enormous strain. And the, you know, the addition of another solar power plant does not help that. It only hurts that process. It, it deepens the belly and it makes the neck even taller. What was the tipping point, effectively? Oh, we've been there for years. Yeah. It, it, it's been very clear. I mean, e even uh, even last year in, in 2017, on a day in March, for example, the price of power went negative in the middle of the day. That yeah. means that there's so much solar power that the grid is paying everybody else to turn off. Is any power. other energy going into the grid at that point or in California? Is California all during midday, you know, on a sunny day, yeah. all wind and solar? Uh, no, that's it, it's not true. Um, it, about 50% of, of California's demand uh, on a on a spring day, you know, a March day could be met by solar. Okay. Um, but but there there are other sources. It's not all wind and solar. Um, for example, you you'll have plenty of natural gas power. But that doesn't mean that the price is going to be positive. At that point, you're actually paying power plants to shut down. Right. You you've got to pay them because in many cases the power plant will prefer not to shut down. It will prefer to keep spinning because it's costly to shut down. In California, we've already recognized that solar has caused serious problems because it's causing negative pricing. And, and that negative pricing is a signal of what I call value deflation. The phenomenon that as more solar comes on the grid, it cannibalizes its own value, it becomes less valuable. And so you know, the, the next solar panel is, is close to worthless. And around the world, Value deflation could cause the rise of solar to stall. Because even though solar is cost competitive today, when there's no solar on the grid, when it's quite a useful uh, thing to add to the grid, well, if you add a lot of it around the world, and I'm telling you you have to get to 33% electricity by 2050 globally, you're going to run into this value deflation wall everywhere. We're already seeing it in California, and, and I expect we will see it in many, many other jurisdictions. One of the things you point out in your book is that you start to run into curtailment. Uh, as a result of some of the, the effects of the duck curve of having too much solar in the grid. Uh, curtailment is obviously a substantial issue potentially for anyone building a power plant and relying on those revenues. Is that playing out yet in California? And what do you foresee in other jurisdictions as, as the risk with curtailment? Yeah, absolutely. I, just to get everyone on the same page, curtailment is when uh, a wind or solar plant is asked not to uh, supply its power to the grid. That, that power is thrown away. It's excess. In, in California, we are seeing curtailment. You know, last year, uh, it was a particularly wet winter. And so your hydro reservoirs ended up being entirely full. Yeah. And so they had to run. They were in what's called spill mode. 
uh, they were very flexible, which they normally are. They had to run, and so you had this glut of just excess. to literally empty the reservoir. Exactly. Yeah, you, you had this glut of excess uh, power on the markets, and so curtailment hit all-time highs of, of wind and solar. What does that mean? Well, in many cases, a solar plant will, in its contract with the utility, for example, it'll have a clause that says that the utility must pay it up to a certain number of hours of production. So for the first few hours of curtailment, that solar plant will probably get paid. But depending on the contractual terms, uh, the next uh, several hours of curtailment, it may not get paid. Everybody kind of feels the cost here. The grid feels the cost because sometimes they have to pay for power they don't use. The solar plant sometimes feels the cost because after a certain number of contracted hours, they also will will suffer the consequences. And and going forward, as curtailment rises, I expect contract terms to become even harsher uh, for solar power plants. Now, you asked about other jurisdictions around the world. Um, I actually do see some improving trends. It's not all bleak. In China, for example, in 2016, uh, they had a uh, a law passed uh, that makes it harder to curtail solar and wind. As you know, in China, they really have a curtailment problem, um, especially out in the far, uh, far-flung provinces in the West, where there's a ton of renewable energy and often not enough transmission capacity to evacuate mm-hmm. it. But, but they do have these priority dispatch laws now in China uh, that hopefully will start to reduce the amount of curtailment and require payment to uh, renewable energy generators, uh, even if there is curtailment. In Europe, very recently, February, regulators, lawmakers in Europe decided that uh, they weren't going to scrap priority dispatch for renewables as uh, we feared might happen. So so this is great. Uh, what this means is renewable energy will be the last to be curtailed. So it can still get curtailed, but it's harder to curtail it than if it's first on the chopping block, sure. so to speak. So let's, we've talked about the the bleak future. Let's talk about your second future that you get into in your book. What does that look like? So the second future is not, you know, the shining utopia. It's not a carbon inverse of the first future. And I want to say, you know, the first future, as I wrote it, sounded kind of like science fiction. And what really scared me was I based it on pretty uh, solid research. There's peer-reviewed research for most of the claims I make in that first future. So it's not science fiction. The second future, I also... So current, current trends, current forecasts are showing a future in which... Sold the value of solar diminishes to a substantial amount, uh, outweighing the cost of solar effectively, right? Exactly. And, and if we don't have a clean energy transition because solar is one of the front-runner technologies and it drops off, well, you have a, a host of bad implications. Now, I was, as I was reading your book, I was thinking in, in there, there is the bleak future of yeah. that's consistent with solar being a small part of total energy deployment. And perhaps we've gotten to a point as we're starting to think of the more positive future that you're going to communicate, where we're liking this weird adjustment phase where we need to be making decisions for how we're going to adjust uh, to a clean energy future. And, and now is sort of the time that we have to really make important decisions, whether it's on the grid and, and the different sources of power and, and, and how we're going to smooth out some of these concerns that you you have. I feel like that, like right now is like this adjustment period. I agree 100%. Right now is when we make decisions that determine if in 2050 we're seeing the second future. Let me tell you what that second yeah. future looks like. Second future is you still have climate change. You still have unsavory decisions like how do we suck carbon out of the atmosphere? Because you know it, it's not good enough to just transition largely to clean energy in the power sector. But at least we've bought ourselves the time to do that. And the way we've done that is solar power kept rising. Solar now accounts in 2050 for 33% of global electricity. 
And even more importantly, uh, solar is being used in other sectors. Solar fuels are starting to take off. Solar is generating hydrogen or even liquid carbon-containing fuels, and it's starting to challenge oil's dominance. And that transition is going to happen in the second half of the century. So we've, we've laid the groundwork through decades of long-term investments. In that brighter future, I believe that in addition to, to keeping climate change at bay, we've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty because there's ubiquitous, low-cost solar uh, that enables electricity access even in places where the grid does not reach. And I believe that you know we, we, we've largely uh, started to solve the scourge of air pollution uh, because finally fossil fuel use is on the wane. So there are a lot of you know uh, positive things in this future. I don't think the problems of the world go away, but at the very least, the world is in control of its destiny. So what part does solar as we know it or even wind as we know it today play in the 2050 future that, that you're envisioning? Hard to tell. You know, a, a one way of looking at this is in the future of 2050, you know, there's this whole panoply of different solar products. There's not just one single solar panel uh, that shows up in every different setting, whether it's a rooftop solar panel or a Walmart roof or a ground-mounted installation out in the Mojave Desert. You actually have this stunning range of diverse products. You have solar coatings for windows. You have a different type of solar coating for weak roofs in slums in the developing world. You have a different kind of solar product for the Mojave Desert. Um, you have a different kind of solar product, whether you're in urban or rural settings, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that range of technological diversity exists in laboratories today. It doesn't exist in the commercial market. And why, why is that technology important to solving this challenge? Why is the, the new technology that you speak of an important component of solving that challenge versus what we have today? You know, when we talk about value deflation, um, we say that solar's value could fall below its cost. Well, if we want to fix that, if we want solar to stay economical, which means it's delivering value above its cost, we've got two options. I think we should pursue both of them. The first is reduce solar's cost faster, and the second is slow this, the fall of solar's value. So the first, reduce solar's cost faster, in my mind is let's go invest in revolutionary technologies that get even cheaper, even faster. Yeah. And the second, let's slow the decline of solar's value. That to me is let's go and build these remarkable systems that are really good at using solar energy no matter when it's produced or how much it fluctuates. That's systemic innovation. The, so, so you talk about a lot of these technologies, and I was, I was going to get to it later, but let's start hitting on some of these technologies that you're thinking about already. There's one that you discuss in your book that I'm gonna, going to butcher, perovskite. And you nailed it. Nailed it. Okay, good. Um, first time for everything. What if, this, is, this is a really cool technology. Uh, you were actually at the ground floor of this when this was discovered, or, or more specifically, when it's, it's, um, the utility of it was discovered. So what is this? Yeah, I had the very good fortune of becoming a graduate student for Dr. Henry Snape uh, in the Oxford Physics Department like two months before uh, this discovery got made in that lab of the invention of the perovskite solar cell, the modern perovskite solar cell. This is a solar cell made out of a material that's different than silicon. It's quite a dirt-cheap material. Um, perovskite, by the way, refers to not the material, but the crystal structure. So many different materials with this crystal structure exist. The most common is actually the most common element of the Earth's crust. Anyway, perovskite is this remarkable material when used in solar cells that allows us to make dirt-cheap, highly efficient, flexible, colorful, and semi-transparent solar coatings. So you can imagine 
you know, a, a coating that makes your window look like stained glass. Mm. You can imagine a that's coating, also producing, that's also producing electricity. electricity. You know, it's blocking unwanted sunlight. Uh, it's reducing the carbon footprint of your building space. Uh, and it's kind of aesthetic. It's pretty. You can imagine churches with their, uh, exactly. their glass windows, right? Just being producing energy the entire time. Exactly. And you can imagine printing this out of, you know, an industrial size jet printer. And that is, you know, a far less capital intensive proposition than the enormous factories needed to make silicon solar panels today. And what's the cost of that in, you know, today and where, where does it need to be in, in 20 years? So this is uh, commercially deployable. This could be pennies per watt of yeah. solar. Just to give you a sense, you know, solar in the United States today is about a dollar a watt. Uh, fully installed systems are about a dollar a watt or a little less. So if we got to pennies per watt, that's an order of magnitude improvement. And folks in Silicon Valley will tell you, if you have a startup and you want to go up against an incumbent, you better have an order of magnitude improvement. Otherwise, uh, you don't have a value proposition. It doesn't help you to shave 10% or 20% of the cost. So, so down the road, I really see remarkable revolutionary value propositions from new technologies, not just that they are more efficient or cheaper on a materials perspective, but they change the entire system architecture, right? We're comparing apples and oranges if we're comparing the cost of a solar window to the cost of a ground-mounted solar panel. So let's talk about hydrogen. You talk about hydrogen cars quite a bit. And hydrogen cars, I'm friends with a gentleman named Terry Taminen uh, from California who has uh, been not just a huge proponent of the environment, but uh, in the early 2000s was a huge proponent of hydrogen cars. Um, but they kind of stalled in favor of electric vehicles. What role do hydrogen cars play? How are you imagining that? You know, we don't know how this is going to play out. You know, you may say, oh, you know, the great battle between hydrogen and electric has led to the victory of electric vehicles. But really, hydrogen and electric right now are playing around at the very margins of a internal combustion engine dominated uh, vehicle fleet. Right? Sure. So, like, th there's a long time to go before we figure out which of the alternative fuels. Uh, well, there's a lot of good signals, right? Volvo. Uh, plenty of great Tesla's signals. obviously still selling a lot of cars. Plenty of great signals that electric vehicles uh, are the front runner among alternative vehicles. You know, the, the advantage of the hydrogen fueled vehicle is refueling time. An, an electric vehicle takes a long time to charge, but if you're used to filling up at a gas station really fast, uh, you can do basically the same thing at a hydrogen fuel station. If, of course, there are enough hydrogen right. fueling stations. So I think that uh, you know, hydrogen vehicles are only one of a range of compelling applications of hydrogen, the energy carrier. I think hydrogen, the energy carrier, is this remarkable way of storing solar energy, right? This is, uh, you know, batteries are often considered the intuitive way to store solar energy, but hydrogen is actually a very compelling proposition. If we could harness sunshine, which is intermittent, and then convert it into hydrogen, which is a store of energy, it's portable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you could power not only cars, but hydrogen can be used to uh, power a range of industries. You can you can use hydrogen, for example, combine it with waste carbon dioxide uh, from you know an industrial smokestack, a coal power plant, and you can use that to produce a range of products that currently petroleum meets, whether it's you know plastics uh, to, to to other kinds of uh, petrochemicals. I think that uh, using hydrogen as a store of energy that is then a feedstock for many different sources of economic value, whether it's used as a transport fuel or as an industrial fuel, I think it's a compelling way to store solar energy. The next technology, out of space solar stations. Really, really cool. It doesn't get, <laughs> doesn't get enough airtime. Um, look, 
Out in outer space, you get 10 times as much solar radiation as you do here on the Earth's surface when you account for no atmospheric losses, no you know day and night, uh, etc. So because of that, it makes a ton of sense. If you can make a really lightweight solar coating to send up a whole fleet of these up in space, maybe self-assemble them using robots, create this enormous array out in outer space of uh, solar panels, and then beam the energy back to Earth in the form of microwaves. Uh, on Earth, you'll have to have a rectifier, a receiving station, uh, that converts the microwaves back into electricity, and then you've got this source of 24-7 non-intermittent solar electricity coming from space. Now, it sounds very futuristic, but it's there are some folks working on this right exactly. now. Japan is working on it. They actually want to uh, build a prototype uh, NASA has a study ongoing. I, I think I am a reviewer for the study. So, you know, serious people, serious scientists, uh, serious governments around the world are putting money behind this. It is a cool proposition. And, and it is, you know, far more realistic than, say, fusion. And so, so all of these different technologies have to be deployed in order for us to meet that second future that you are envisioning, right? Where the status quo right now runs us the risk of the first future in which we do not adequately because of the value of solar uh, achieve substantial climate uh, mitigation whereas in order for us to to meet that second future it's going to require us to elevate our thinking a little bit and innovate even more so than we had envisioned hey i, I couldn't have said it better all i'll say is that second future may or may not require us to deploy all of these cool new technologies but it at least requires us to make substantial investments in all of them. And what kind of investments are being made now? Well, around the world, countries invest uh, on the order of $15 billion in research and development in energy technologies. And the goal under Mission Innovation, which is a pact made at the Paris Climate uh, Change Accords, the goal was for countries to double that to $30 billion by 2021. Now. Initially, when President Trump took office, it didn't look like the United States was going to meet its own target, and the U.S. is the biggest funder of energy R&D around the world. But remarkably, just last week, Congress passed the omnibus spending bill, which actually increases U.S. funding for oh, energy innovation. So we're probably a couple of years behind our commitment, but we are actually increasing our energy R&D. And around the world, other countries that signed up to Mission Innovation appear to be on track. So we could actually see substantial investments in energy innovation. Maybe we won't hit the 30 billion number. We're probably going to break 20 billion. Um, How do you get the capital, or maybe not the capital markets, but the you know, private investors? Is, is this mostly the realm of governments to, to fund some of the more cutting edge innovation? Or can we, you, you communicated the, the story of nanosolar attracting millions of dollars back in the day, which has probably now made Silicon Valley skittish on making these types of investments. Um, is this just for the governments to fund? You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the private investors are definitely skittish about funding breakthrough energy technologies, whether in solar or other fields, be it advanced nuclear. But, but that's not to say that that makes this entirely the realm of the government. Because if the government's the only funder here, you're not going to have breakthrough energy technologies. The government's got to do a great job of intelligently mobilizing its own resources to encourage private capital to flow. And, and so that means, yes, ramping up government research, development, and demonstration. Uh, but it also means doing much more than just basic research, right? Uh, if you want to embolden private investors, it's helpful if the government 
uh, helps fund the first-of-a-kind field demonstration project of a new technology. Sure. It, it's helpful if the government provides shared resources uh, that help to de-risk particular investments. So Cyclotron Road out in Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, your old stopping grounds. Yes. Cyclotron Road offers entrepreneurs these shared facilities. They can use LBNL's lab resources, and a VC uh, might not have to go and fund all of their independent lab space. So, so there are many ways that you can basically make clean energy investing a more attractive proposition to investors. And by the way, we probably want a wider range than just VCs. Yeah. The VC model might not work for... I mean, corporates seem to be some of the more manufacturing or industry-based corporates seem to be a logical partner for a lot of this technology. Absolutely. Corporates, and as well as folks who have a longer time horizon, folks who can write bigger checks. Um, you know, Bill Gates is trying to solve this problem with his Breakthrough Energy Fund, which aims to be a long-term patient capital investor. Do you know if they've made investments out of that yet? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. that They're, they're yeah. still setting up their team. I think we'll need many more uh, investors of that ilk. Speaking of investors, you go into some of the financing structures. So I want to talk about a few of those. For us at Clean Capital, this is where we focus a lot of our attention on how we unlock institutional capital. The statistic we often cite is only 0.4% of institutional capital is currently in anything resembling clean energy. That's a World Economic Forum study. So there's a lot on the sidelines right now that needs to come in. You start by talking about yield codes. Let's talk about quickly what a yield co is uh, and then get into why, why it makes sense. Or why it didn't make sense originally. Yeah, let's start with why <laughs> yeah. it didn't make sense for, to start. Yeah, so, so, so the yield co at its core is actually quite a good idea. And I remain committed to that proposition that the yield co correctly structured, in my opinion, is simply a holding vehicle that allows you to bundle together a lot of uh, different renewable energy assets, creates a diversified portfolio, and it's easily tradable. It's a vehicle listed on a public stock market, for example, and so investors can buy and sell shares of it. This solves two important problems for large institutional investors, who you mentioned only 0.4% of their capital is invested in anything resembling this stuff. But it, a whole lot more should be, because sure. you know the return profile of a renewable energy project is just ideal from the perspective. It's a long-term, low-risk, high-yield uh, investment. That's wonderful. A solar power plant just sits there and produces electricity. For, for someone like a pension fund or an insurance yeah. company who basically has to just pay uh, almost fixed liabilities year after year after year, the cash flows from these solar facilities produce that, match that liability. Exactly. So the Yield Co. solves two problems Two recent two barriers for institutional investors to invest in this stuff. First, institutional investors just don't have the manpower to diligence each project, right? A yield co offers them a diversified portfolio. And second, institutional investors are far more comfortable buying and trading publicly traded securities uh, than buying and trading, you know, projects which have serious liquidity risks. So by solving those two problems, um, this basically connects an investor who would want to be invested in this asset class. Uh, with an opportunity to do so. Now, the first incarnation of Yield Codes crashed and burned. Um, sure. You know, we all they, remember it. We all remember it. Um, the, the model was... Here in the United States. Here in the United States, exactly. Yeah. The, the model was for a, a parent company, a developer, uh, the most infamous was Sun Edison, uh, to uh, have a child Yield Code. And the parent developer would develop projects and then drop those down or sell them into the Yield Code. This creates a lot of you know, different conflicts of interest, for example. Um, there were some governance issues. 
you know, allegedly uh, Sun Edison had some uh, meddle in the internal affairs of what's supposed to be an independent publicly traded company, yeah. the Yield Co. There were, you know, majority shareholders, so they could do that. And the, the Yield Co. was structured in a way that it was greedy. It, it, it needed growth in order to keep its shareholders happy. And, and I don't think that fundamentally we should think of these vehicles as growth vehicles. Look, this vehicle is supposed to be exactly what we want it to be, which is boring. Yeah, it's meant it's meant to be boring for boring investors, yes. right? Um, who want predictability? We <laughs> we want the yield code to be divorced from market risk. The market goes up and down, but the yield code just has a bunch of stable underlying cash flows. Let's let's not make it dependent on on, on the market. So I think that was a mistake that was made with that first incarnation. Yep. So there was uh, you know a, a confluence of events sometime in the summer of 2015, and a bull market turned bear, and suddenly these yield codes. Uh, just were were sold off uh, and and spiraled downwards and and lost folks a lot of money. Going forward, I don't think that has to be the case. I think you correctly pointed out the U.S. yield codes were the ones to burn out. Well, the European yield codes are doing just fine. The European yield codes are structured in that much more safe, boring way. I think going forward, uh, once investors uh, get over the scars of the yield code crash, I think that the next generation, whatever it's called, it may not be a yield code, the next generation that bundles together solar assets into a diversified pool that can be bought and sold as securities, that's going to offer institutional investors a way uh, to invest more of their capital in this attractive asset class. I've looked at the historical stock price of the Renewable Energy Infrastructure Group, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange, the European yield code. Um, from 2013 today in preparation for the podcast. And with the exception of Brexit in July of 2016, the stock price moved basically like 5%. Yeah. One way or most, yeah. mostly trickled up. Compare that to what Turk, Sun Edison's Yields Co. did uh, from 2014 through 2015 when it crashed, right? It was a much more volatile, much more big swing. So it's supposed to be boring, like an MLP. Or like a REIT in real estate, right? Exactly. Exactly. Those were the, the original inspirations. Look, if the solar industry is going to have the kind of success as other parts of the industry, and Sun Edison aspired to be the next energy super major, sure. right? well, well, they're going to have to use some of the financial tricks that other folks use. Oil and gas industry can fund its pipelines thanks to MLPs. Yep. You, know, you mentioned uh, real estate investment trusts in the real estate sector. Um, and, and the one thing you, know, you and I haven't mentioned yet is is how the auto or mortgage industries uh, fund auto loans and, and mortgages. That's, so talk about that a little bit. So that that's securitization. Yeah. It's asset-backed securities that enable those industries uh, to source enormous amounts of capital. And institutional investors are very comfortable with uh, asset-backed securities. And I think securitization is starting to take off uh, here in the United States. I think in 2017, we saw over a billion dollars of securitization yeah. done. So securitization... Uh, works beautifully for these distributed assets. You've got a lot of rooftop solar panels, for example. You may not want to invest in any one of them because you have credit risk or production risk, but if you aggregate a whole lot of them into a portfolio, you can smooth out some of those risks and you have a pretty attractive portfolio of attractive recurring cash flows. Well, if you pull that into a portfolio, you can bundle and slice and dice it into securities and sell them on markets just the same way as you would for for auto loans, for example. Sure. Um, so, so this is a way for us to speed the deployment of distributed solar assets because you'll have a much more, uh, a much deeper pool of capital available 
what we love about it at Clean Capital is is that it ultimately unlocks. You know, some of these developers are holding on to these assets. Um, what they really want to do, the best use of capital, is to sell it down to a long-term pension fund, whether it's the equity of a yield co or the debt of a securization. So they then have that money back in their pockets to recycle into new development, right? So you just get that cycle like you have with MLPs and REITs. Exactly. And and I think you guys play an extremely important role in the ecosystem. Um, because as we, as we get this market started, we're going to need those intermediaries. And I think you guys exemplify this. Clean Capital is going to connect a institutional investor, a pension fund that's kind of unfamiliar with the space uh, with uh, this portfolio of distributed assets. And in doing that the first time, or the second time, or the third time, uh, you then unlock capital that can then be recycled to do even more developments. And you kind of get the ball rolling. Yeah. And once the ball's rolling, this becomes a self-sustaining ecosystem, right? Um, where institutional investors consistently give capital. That capital then uh, enables the developer to recycle his, you know, his warehouse loans uh, and go and do even more distributed solar deployment. I think your role right now as an intermediary, a conduit, is super important. And we, we, think right. <laughs> we think you're right. We think you're right. All right. So as we start to wrap off, you know, we, we've hit a lot of different points here. Maybe you could crystallize where we need to get to um, over the next five years. I think there's a lot of steps to be taken. And and what you think is, you know, what's the urgency? Is, is it urgent or is this a long path to 2050? And what do we have to do near term to kind of adjust our mindsets? You know, before I answer that, let me just say the stuff we were talking about just now, the financial innovation, you might say, why am I talking about financial innovation for existing technologies? And then I'm talking about new technology. Sure. Well, I actually think of this uh, as, as happening in parallel. I think that in the near term, we have a great technology and we'd like to deploy as much of it as possible. And that's where financial innovation can help us. And down the road, new technologies will take over and they'll benefit from the financial innovations that we've been developing. And so down the road, they're going to emerge into a very sophisticated marketplace if we invest in parallel in these brand new technologies. So, so I think all of this happens in parallel. I think that's right. And, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive that a pension fund can invest in a 20-year asset right now. And simultaneously, we can be advancing innovation on many other fronts. I think that's exactly right. Now, now your, your, your question was, hey, what's the urgency here? And it doesn't really look like there's much urgency, right? Like, look, we've, we've got something that works. Solar is the fastest growing uh, energy source on the planet. Um, it attracted $160 billion in investment last year. These are all great signs. Yeah. The, the auction prices are coming in around the world at two cents per kilowatt hour. This is unbelievable. But by the way, you know, those are for projects that will be built in a couple of years. We don't actually know what subsidies are bundled, but still right. remarkable. What on earth is the urgency? What I argue in the book why I wrote it is this is a slow moving train wreck. It's urgent because if we don't make the investments now, we'll rue the day we didn't make the investments, call it 10 years down the line. Yeah. You know? and, and, and if we hit that wall, it'll then be too late for us to say, oh, we didn't invest in innovation, time to do it now. Because some of these types of innovations have long lead times. So in parallel, I think we urgently got to invest in all three kinds of innovation. Financial stuff is doing very well, and, and you know we're thankful for, for Clean Capital's role in the ecosystem. The, the technological stuff, that's where governments have to be you know, strongly supporting new technologies. And then on systems, look, we're already seeing in some frontier markets, whether it's California or Germany, 
We are seeing markets where solar has achieved a large penetration, and it's now time to make your grids flexible enough to handle that. You know, in California, um, we've realized that because of value deflation, as soon as the mandate is no longer protecting solar's growth, in California, we have a grace period now because we're pretty close to our 2020 mandate, we'll easily hit it. Solar's growth has stalled. The economic reality has emerged from that veil of mandates, and it's clear now that solar has no economic path forward without further mandates and subsidies. Well, we better make our system far more flexible, and I think California is actually doing good. California will lead the way again on this? I really think it's got to. It's got to be the jurisdictions that have achieved high penetrations have to show the rest of the world how you integrate a lot of solar. And there's so much to do. California, 100% should be uh, joining you know, a, a, a larger Western energy market. It started to do this with the energy imbalance market, but you know, its, its entire wholesale power market ought to be integrated with Western states. You need to build a lot more transmission links, both here in the Western United States and across the US, to make it easier to aggregate renewable energy. And I think California and states like New York are leading the way on making their utilities uh, service platforms for a smarter grid that enables demand response and flexibility. Storage is another key component. So there, there's so much that happens now to prove to the world, hey, we've got a ton of solar. Here's how we integrate. And we didn't even get into the revamping of the grid. So there's a lot more. There's a lot more, but I encourage everyone who listens to this podcast to go out and buy Taming the Sun. It's a, it is sort sort of an anthropology of where we've been and and a mandate for uh, or a recommendation for where we have to get to. It's a great contribution to the space. Barun, thanks very much for joining Experts Only Podcast. Tom, thanks so much for having me. Thank you to Varun for joining us this week. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation and get a copy of his book. Of course, thank you to our producers Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor. Please visit cleancapital.com for more information about Clean Capital and to listen to prior podcasts. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.